this week on the Back Table Podcast. Do not be complacent. You have to be open for new ideas, knowledge, and technique in treating patients. You always want to improve your outcomes. So you have to stay hunger all the time. I go through a self-assessment every couple months. What can I do to improve this practice and um, how to make it better? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your home for all things interventional and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. Feel free to reach out to us on social media with suggestions about how we can improve the podcast and bring more valuable resources to the interventional community. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. I started taking AG1 because my brother-in-law has been using it for the past year and has been swearing that it's been helping him with his workout. So I said, I <laughs> have to give this a try. Um, and uh, when I started it, I, I was pleasantly surprised. The first thing I thought, anything green I see is going to be bad tasting, but I honestly enjoy the taste. Uh, it's easy to make. I make a glass in the morning before going to work. It takes me about five seconds to do. And I've been using it for the past month and a half, and I've been feeling great so far. I like it because for me, I, I have three kids and I work all the time and I have a lot of hard call weekends. And, and to me, you know, maybe this is, you know, partially mental, but I, I see what's in the, you know, you, you look at the back of it, you see what's in this. And I like to feel like it's replenishing what the rest of my life is taking away. Totally. Totally. And I, I'm in LA, right? So this is totally lifestyle friendly. I've got people who are paleo, keto, I don't know, Vito, Tito, whatever. This is everything. And um, it, it goes, there's only there's less than one gram of sugar. So, you know, even my wife, my my sister will try it, who are like crazy about diets and it doesn't violate anything. So you're getting something healthy. It's making you feel better. I mean, you know, do you have to be an athlete to be to do this? No. I mean, what do you think, Parata? No, I'm living proof. You don't have to be an athlete to take these greens. Uh, <laughs> I, like I said, it's this for me. It's it's academic greens, and uh, you also get a vitamin D supplement, which is important for people like me who work in departments that don't have any windows. Yeah, the basement, basically. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's where I I don't even know if it's raining or sunny outside. <laughs> Um, I've been using, you know, I've been using the vitamin D supplement comes as a dropper and I just put the drop in my, in my athletic greens shake actually, but you can put it in whatever you want. Apparently Wait, you're not supposed to use that as an eyedropper. <laughs> no wonder your eyes are green. That's now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you Don't guys, you take got, it as an eyedropper, they, folks. They, they yeah, think you have icterus or jaundice, dude. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtablevi uh, again, that's athleticgreens.com slash backtable VI 
to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah. That's why they're going to rename the segment Beans Greens. <laughs> <laughs> my, this, this, my greens definitely has helped you, Brad. So it is. It's, it's, <laughs> the jokes just get funnier. The jokes are even better. Um, hey, look, and I have AG1 to thank for this. Now, back to the show. Today, we're happy to continue our spine and pain-related topics with another world expert joining us today, Dr. Dan Nguyen, interventional neuroradiologist from Neuroradiology and Pain Solutions of Oklahoma. Dr. Nguyen, welcome to the show, and thanks for your time. Well, thanks, Jacob. It's a pleasure being here. I've been a fan of yours uh, and back table for some time now. Well, we're excited to have you today, and I, I have to say we're very lucky we recently had the chance to discuss with Dr. Jack Jennings, and uh, we're continuing with the ASSR dynasty. Uh, lucky to have another prior president of the American Society of Spine Radiology today. So we really appreciate your expertise and coming on. And you are an expert in many of these areas of pain interventions. And one of the things we really wanted to get your expertise on is the field of headache interventions, which is something a little bit out of the ordinary for radiologists to be practicing. And so really excited to dive into this topic today. Uh, before we begin, could you just tell us about your life and uh, your training path, how you came to be doing pain interventions in your career, and tell us a little bit about your current practice. Oh, okay. Well, most of you know me. I, I wasn't born in, in the U.S. I actually immigrated here uh, back in 75 from um, South uh, Vietnam. Um, and uh, we, uh, through the gracious uh, government um, here in the U.S., I uh, came to uh, Northern California uh, with just a bag, really. I mean, we didn't, it was not a planned trip. And uh, we stayed there. And somehow in two years, my, my mother and father bought a house and uh, They've been residing there. I left there. I went to college there, and then I left there to go to medical school in the uh, back in the East Coast, and I have not returned since then, back in the uh, mid uh, early eighties. You've kind of been all around, all over since then. You've you've really uh, traveled all over the U.S. during your career. Well, you know, through my uh, journey, it's been one of the things I really enjoy was meeting the different type of people, what their passion was, and. And learn from them, and uh, many of those have become uh, and stayed still are my friends to this day. You know, when I was in in Washington D.C., my mentor Dieter Schellinger got me interest in the spine, and then in that area at that time was kind of like the mecca of vertebral augmentation. You know, as you know, that came from France, but it was brought to the Virginia area, and then in the uh, Washington D.C. area is where people like Greg. Zorsky, John Mathis, Orlando Ortiz, Wayne Olin, Kier Murphy, and so on. They were all right there within driving distance from me. And I, I met them and learned to uh, respect them and became friends with them. And, and it kind of got me this whole journey of intervention, which I never knew of doing my initial going to uh, radiology. Yeah, that's pretty amazing that so many of the world experts were concentrated in that local proximity. And you carried the torch on from them. It's very exciting to hear about that. Yeah, it, it was just a great experience. And then you know, I, I came from uh, Washington, D.C., and I went there next to uh, Penn State and spent the next 13 years up there. Kind of uh, had a great opportunity to uh, build a uh, division. And um, from there, I kind of 
span out from uh, what I was set to do was build a, a division of diagnostic imaging, but my focus was always on the side was intervention. And, you know, despite doing stroke and aneurysm work at that time, I became much more interested in the you know, musculoskeletal or neurological pain that kind of led me to today, uh, what I'm doing. And I kind of um, hold my skills and learn from a lot of great and, and more expert than me at that time and, and just kind of uh, dive into the, the, the anatomy and the function and how can I perfect my skill set through those interactions. Amazing. And so you, you've had a, an exceptional career in academic radiology and more recently you've brought your talents to the community level in Oklahoma City. Can you tell us about that transition and, and what's the current practice like? Absolutely. That that was a uh, focus. Uh, um, you know, I've been thinking about how do what do I want to do for for the rest of my career. You know, uh, and I had a wonderful time in academia and met a lot of friends and students, and many of those went to do great things. But inside, I knew I want to do something different. So about I would say probably six, seven years ago, you know, I had a conversation with uh, someone of, of our mutual friends here in Oklahoma City, Dr. Uh, Bio, and, and you, know, we, you know, he talked to me and he told me, come to Oklahoma City, and I go, no, I'm not going to, you know, he had <laughs> a, 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 a vision Oklahoma, and I go, I'm from the East Coast, big city, but when he invited me one weekend to come here with my family, and I took that offer, and I, it kind of fell in love with, with the area. And and uh, what I can do here, and um, and that that sets the, the motion to what I want to do, and and um, I want to focus uh, something different at that part of my career. So I came here and opened a practice here. Um, you know, focus on patient outcome and you know latest technology, bring the treatment to them, uh, integrate research, and then hopefully it, soon I'll, I'll be doing education just like I did in academia, but now at, at this level where I can have some control over it. Very, very exciting. It sounds very complimentary to your experience so far and, and really cool that you get to bring those skills that you've honed over decades into a different environment. And so is your current practice predominantly interventional and clinical at this point? It's completely, I would say, 95% clinical. Uh, um, we, we do uh, some trials here, clinical trial. And then I still read films uh, because I feel like some, some aspect of it I want to maintain. I don't want to lose. I've, I've used it. I've learned all through these years, and I don't want to lose it. So I still do of that, really just kind of maintain my skill uh, more of a, a, in that perspective. So... And it's really just period clinical. You know, I, I see patients, I treat them, I see them back. And some of these patients I have in our practice, they've been with me for the last four years. So it, it's a long-term relationship that I have with a lot of these very, very uh, dear-to-heart patients of mine. Yeah. That's wonderful. That sounds really gratifying to be able to build up that longitudinal relationship with the patient sometimes in radiology, especially in training. We, we don't get the opportunity to do that so much. We're consulted for uh, an intervention, often in the acute term, and we don't have the opportunity to see that. I, I imagine that adds a, a different dimension to your work. And, and, you know, that's the one thing that I, I have must say that I, I see a transition in our field. I think when I entered this about over 20 years ago, it's exactly what you said. You know, it, it's kind of like a 
point of care, and then that's it. You know, but I've been seeing many, many of us uh, have transitioned to this new model, and I pre- presume in the coming years, more and more like yourself, uh, will be doing this as well. Just, you know, that's the only way to deliver best of care because you know these patients uh, as well as anyone else and what they need and stuff like that. And if we don't have that continual care, we tend to lose that perspective. We're kind of depending on someone else who may not know the patient from the way that you know them and their pain and the location of that. And uh, I think I'm seeing that quite a lot uh, in our field. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy uh, to see that, actually. I agree completely. It's been really exciting to see that organically happening over the last few years. And I would say that earlier on in the field of interventional radiology, which, again, really encompasses, you know, VIR as well as interventional neuroradiology and musculoskeletal radiology, really any radiologist doing interventions, we have the the imaging expertise and the procedural expertise and we have the theoretical <laughs> clinical acumen it's just that it's not so much uh, typically a focus throughout our training and uh, earlier in our field's history i think we we didn't really have these sort of role models for how that's kind of done and and now our entire field is benefiting from a lot of the trailblazing work of people like Doug Beal Wayne Olin and yourself who have, have gone out and shown that we can do this and it adds a, a very gratifying and important element to the work. Much better to be able to evaluate the patient yourself rather than receive a request for an L4-5 uh, epidural steroid injection. But when you, if you as a radiologist examine the patient yourself and correlate with the imaging findings, you kind of say, this doesn't really correspond with, you know, ridiculous symptoms. And then you use all that to come up with the best treatment plan. It just seems like a better way of doing things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it could be starting just a basic epidural, but then you will see, wow, you know, the patient actually have lumbar spinal stenosis. There's other things that I can help them. And and it takes on that kind of role if you specifically engage yourself with the patient. In, in, in a continual care pattern. Absolutely. And on that topic, how would you say that your background in uh, neuroradiology and specifically your experience with interventional neuroradiology, how does that inform your, your diagnostic and therapeutic approach, bringing those skills in? You know, that's, that's the groundwork. I think it's very important that every patient that comes to my office, my staff know that you know, despite that we have an official report elsewhere that I specifically ask them to bring a CD, or in rare occasion they have films, you know, but a specific CD of an outsized to all of them, anything that pertains to the area of their pain, bring them. Every patient, I look at them and actually show them on the TV what I'm thinking, you know, and so they're understanding what, you know, why I'm doing this, and, and because of that, you know, the background, of imaging and, and spatial relational anatomy, you, you kind of get appreciate the patient uh, where the pain and you actually, most of the time, you do find things that were missed and, and no fault to anybody. I mean, it's hard to read a, a study without any information f- remotely, you know, and so you have a patient right here, you're looking at them, I say, okay, wow, there it is, there's the problem. And then you point out to the patient, uh, get, you know, their eyes, I go, wow, okay, this is really and they take a, a role in their care now. They understand why I'm doing this. 
And that's very important. So I think um, the background I had in imaging um, really, really served as a baseline that launched the, the next level into intervention. I love that. You know, it's in our training, we spend the majority of our time on imaging, perhaps some would say to our detriment, but I, I don't think so. I think that it adds a different dimension to the clinical evaluation. And like you said, we we never take the report at face value, even if it's done by a colleague radiologist of ours who we agree with and uh, admire their work. It's just second nature based on how we function in, in residency and fellowship to always look at the imaging ourselves and confirm that. And, and also, it definitely is crucial for the procedural planning when it comes to that point. And so uh, on that note, I'd actually like to transition a little bit to talking about some of the headache interventions. And one of the things I've been thinking about with this, and I'll say I haven't performed any headache interventions at this point in my career other than for CSF hypotension. And so I know a lot of these interventions involve really very eloquent and small real estate, particularly at the skull base. And as radiologists, whether we're trained in neuroradiology or not, we throughout our training read thousands of head CTs. It's probably one of the single most common studies that we read and often for the indication of headache. <laughs> and yet most of the time, our impression is sort of no acute intracranial abnormality. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the clinical evaluation of headache and then how does the imaging aspect come into that? Are there often any imaging correlates to these headache syndromes and how do you spin that all together? Well, I think the, the imaging that we see day in, day out is coming, a lot of it coming from the ER. And so the, they look for big stuff, you know, the big intracranial hemorrhage or a mass or unexpected mets or something. So yeah, we see that, but you know, um, even normal people have headache. You look at that, most of the time it's normal. And then it's, it's really hard to correlate that clinically unless you have a patient sitting in front of you and describe to me, doc, I have this pain right over my eyebrow, you know, or I have this pain right in my jawlines. Some specific uh, region now gets you thinking of the, the neuroanatomy supply of the face. And then you kind of go back there and look at that and Sometimes um, you find something, but most of the time it's, it's negative. You know, I mean, certain things like trigeminal neuralgia, they have this pain, you know, it's a kind of electrical pain over their face, but you don't see anything on the imaging. But every once in a while you see a vessel next to it, which probably was not, to be fair, difficult to catch on the front end from the original interpreter. But you, know, you can suggest that maybe there's a vascular uh, compression syndrome that may cause that. So on rare occasion, you find that most of the time you don't, but it's good. But then now, now you kind of go back to your understanding of the neuroanatomy of the face. And then you kind of troubleshoot, oh, okay, if it's in the front of the ear, maybe it's auricular temporal uh, nerve that may be bothersome. Some other area, maybe superorbital, infraorbital, mental, you know, there's different nervous supplies to face and our understanding of the anatomy helps us to kind of hone down now and say, okay, we'll, we'll try the most superficial 
approach, and then we'll dive into the deep part of the skull and facial region uh, as a secondary backup option. And uh, when you started your practice in Oklahoma City, what was your approach to raise awareness that you were offering these therapies? What kind of physicians did you approach and how, how are patients coming to you now? Yeah, so when I came here, as anyone else, no one knew of you. <laughs> um, so I just start with my basic, what I know, you know at that time. And what I knew was exactly what you say is is um, spontaneous intracranial hypotension. And, and I kind of start with the group of practitioners that deal with this the most, which is most of the time the headache doctor. And there's not too many of them in most cities. And so, but each main center will have one or several of those. And, and that's how I started. I kind of introduced myself and say, okay, well, there's this entity, you know, and then the conversation leads to other areas, you know, like what I'm doing today. So getting that face-to-face interaction with someone, the old-fashioned way, you know, it's very effective. Uh, and, I, you know, most of them I give them my cell number. I, I freely, you know, say, text me, call me, whatever you need, just you know, do that. And I, you know, from there, I also obviously had to learn about the patient-directed digital marketing um, right. for my kids um, <laughs> and, and how we can do that, part of that too. And so before you know it, people know there's someone here in Oklahoma that does this kind of thing. And so it infiltrates very quickly because there's not too many of us doing that too. So it's kind of everyone's searching for a partner in this uh, arena. And, and, and uh, that's how it kind of build up from here kind of organically, so to speak, with some intent. You know, sometimes you can go and do, go to this center and, and I offer to do a grand rounds on headaches and I talk about different things, you know, and kind of of that too. And so it's a combination of things. Since I'm not in a, uh, a medical center, so to speak, I have to add, purposely go out and uh, develop my relationship with different people uh, in this area. And that's how I started. Excellent. So a bit of deliberate practice building with respect to the headache, but it sounds like as things have gone on, you're getting a mixture of both physician-referred and self-referred patients. And so you're probably seeing a, a wide variety of the manifestations of headache. And with that, I imagine uh, starting out from uh, SIH, you had to basically bring more tools into your armamentarium and can you just briefly talk about the different headache entities, maybe just list uh, the top five and, and what are the therapeutic approaches for those? Yeah. So, you know, most of this, what I'm saying right now, I did not know back then either. It's, it's one of those things that I think when, when you're doing something new, you kind of start to dive into it and you start to read more and you start to look at the research. And, and other uh, society, what they're doing, and it kind of got your interest. And I go, wow, this whole area is like, is a little more broader than I thought, you know. And, and so from there, you know, typically today, you know, I'm seeing a lot of certainly the, the migranous headache that has uh, an occipital component to it. Uh, um, and then, um, and that could be just from ranging from uh, muscular a genic nature, you know, where we can do some simple trigger point to really an occipital, you know, painful 
with palpation occipital neuralgia, where we can do uh, you know a test injection and then we can do uh, some kind of ablative therapy and then uh, bring on neuromodulation, peripheral nerve uh, nausea. I didn't even know what that was four years ago yeah. <laughs> uh, when I came yeah. to Oklahoma. You know, well, you know, what is that? You know, and so those kind of things, you know, I've learned from my colleagues in, in the interventional pain world through my interaction uh, nationally with them and uh, brought that into our practice as well. So that's, that's the most, you know, I think occipital neurology that I deal with. You know, the, the other one is a cervicogenic headache, which, you know, you kind of have to rule out. There's some people who have the pain from the spine. I did not know there was a nice, uh, cervical trigeminal connection in the brain, uh, where, where your pain in the neck could manifest along the face and vice versa. There's that deep inherent connection. And so, uh, you kind of have to work through that too. Is it coming from the spine where you're having pain in the face? Uh, so, you know, typical things you, you do for that is, is okay. Well, you know, I look at the, the x-ray or the CT or MRI, whatever that is, and see if there's any, potential cause of that and do some trial injection and then go from there to ablative therapy and, and uh, again, uh, neuromodulation if needed. Of, of late, uh, I've been getting a lot of trigeminal neuralgia, mainly from uh, trigeminal neuralgia centers uh, around, around the Oklahoma State Connection and um, people with MS are getting a lot of, uh, of this. And Certainly, no uh, deal with it from from a, an imaging review and looking for vascular compression. But you know they have these really terrible, shocking pain. That I mean, I f- I feel so badly for these patients to live with this. So we we've been looking at at ways to to deal with that, depending on what region it comes from. You know whether it's V one, V two, V three, and and we have we know from the anatomy there's areas of where these nerves come from and. And we typically do a trial injection of those areas, you know, like V1, superorbital, supertrochlear, and then uh, V2, infraorbital, and then in a frame of rotundum, we can access that through CT uh, uh, if you need to. And then the V3, you know, superficially mental nerve, and then could be as far back as uh, foramenal valley where you can do that. And I discover, I was very shy with floral beginning, but I discover floral um, scopic guidance doing that is so easy once you get to know where you can see it and you can much easier than CT to get there. I'd like to jump in on that because uh, that's something as I've been reading about this, I get a little bit antsy when I'm looking at fluoro pictures of the skull base and a needle going through someone's face. And, you know, in radiology, we look at skull radiographs. To me, the the diagnostic skull radiograph probably has one of the lowest yields. And yet there's quite a bit that you can see on it, especially for procedural guidance. Could you talk about the movement from CT to fluoro and how did you kind of mentally get over that hump? You're absolutely right about this. And I, I am so appreciative of the early days of fluoroscopy, what they used to diagnose things. We're talking about, you know, decades ago. And because they see so many things on there that we don't appreciate today, all the, 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 the pathology. And so it took me kind of looking at the floral picture and then look side by side with the MRI and the CT. And I kind of look at there and go, well, if I take this approach, what is the worst thing that I can do? You know, where, what things I need to avoid? 
And and when I look at the approach to the Foremo Valley, um, I go, wow, you know, it's not a real lot of things here. It's not it's not a karate that's gonna be there or or anything. And and if I take this angle, you know, there's really not a lot of things other than just sharpen my skill of advancing the needle meticulously without, you know, changing the direction and, and cause a lot of aggravation because it's a very sensitive area of the face. So once I overcome the 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 unknown of, oh, wow, this is putting someone's needle into the face, I get really, you know, once I understand the anatomy, I go, it's really pretty safe if you just develop a, a right uh, visual approach of it. And that's what we say. I love to look at that. And once you have that, it's a straight shot into the foramen from the cheek area. It's really encouraging, much easier than expected, it sounds like. <laughs> it is. I mean, like I say, you know, it's understanding the anatomy and look look at the things that we know, you know, from cross-sectional imaging. Go, what is there there that I have to avoid, you know, that would be devastation if I hit it, you know? And once I overcame that, I didn't see anything that I, then it was uh, just a matter of getting used to the view of, from the floral perspective. And it's, you know, so easy to do. It's just like C1, C2. You know, you know what's going on there. You know, I find it much easier to do in floral than CT guided C1, C2. I can do a fraction of the time doing uh, floral because it doesn't take a lot to set up. And, and you can um, make some minor adjustment when you get the needle, which CT, sometimes the patient move a little bit, then you have to reset again. It's just a little more time-consuming. But there, there are times when you have to use CT, but uh, there's some, some transitional phase where you just have to kind of do yourself, look at the imaging and see what is there that I need to be not hitting. And once you see that, go, wow, okay. And then you just kind of overcome your fear, like, sure. like heights, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's kind of a mental block. And, and once you mm-hmm. understand, like you said, where the procedure is done in the same manner as in CT in terms of the needle trajectory, where we just are using image guidance in a different manner. And I think it's something that's it's very important for trainees of my cohort in that we do a lot of procedures under CT current resident and fellows and training. And, and I think it has to do with probably availability and uh, the comfort level. And it's understandable. We do a lot more probably complex interventions, including drainages and things of that nature. And it's with that kind of variable anatomy, it is good to have the three-dimensional aspect. But when you're doing something like a trigeminal nerve block, a gasserian ganglion nerve block, you know, as you said, you're not going to be impinging on the carotid. There's not other critical structures nearby, and you have a little bit more of a, a reproducible approach. So knowing that CT and fluoro are both available, and of course, always using the approach that's the safest for the patient, but knowing that it's definitely feasible with both. There's one other modality that I want to kind of give a little bit uh, a hedge. It's ultrasound. I mean, I think we we have in our radiology, we use ultrasound quite a lot, but maybe not in in, in certain subspecialty in, in uh, radiology. But that is another modality that I integrate into our, our practice, especially in the superficial face. And then also peripheral nerve uh, in the extremities too. But that's another thing that I think has a large part in our um 
guidance. Sometimes it's actually easier doing that way than than any other uh, ways that were thus far been introduced to. So absolutely, a lot of love for ultrasound. It's such a dynamic modality. We tend to get quite a bit exposure to this during our training, and so adapting it to some of these places where probably in training we haven't used it much in the upper cervical spine or the face. It's definitely an important thing to do. And you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, that you've learned a lot from interventional pain colleagues. And I really want to emphasize that point because a a lot of people in that area have have really done some of the pioneering work on these headache interventions, in particular, uh, Samer Naruz, who uh, anesthesia, interventional pain, Titan, who his book that you recommended to me Interventional Management of Head and Face Pain is, is sort of the current Bible on these things and, and represents culmination of a lot of the anatomic studies and development of these techniques over time. And it's just something that I want to put out there. I think that our specialty, radiology and the interventional subspecialties, we gain a lot by interfacing with the specific interventional pain and pain management communities because we have uh, complementary approaches. And a lot of this work has has been done by people like Dr. Naruz, who were singularly focused on these areas. And in particular with ultrasound, he's described a lot of the ultrasound guided approaches to upper cervical blocks. And we learn a lot by incorporating those approaches, I think. And, you know, you're, you're so right there, uh, what you said there, Jake. I mean, it's one of the things I think makes the whole field, and not just individual, but as uh, as a society or a field, is, is is learn from each other, and that's something that I have always carried with me. Is that I I always sometimes I have my my ways of doing it. I've always kind of keep my mind open about what other ways people are uh, doing the same thing in different ways, and that's the only way you get better is you learn from each other. I learned so much from my surgical colleague doing spine and neurosurgical colleague, you know, how they do it and the approach they do, you know, I incorporate into my, my practice uh, on the other areas of the body. And so, you know, my goal one day is uh, with my uh, recent opportunity uh, from a national society perspective is trying to have a little more crosstalk with uh, the interventional pain, especially with the ASSR, any of the ASNR, trying to get more interventional pain integration into our programming uh, and and uh, work through between several uh, society to try to get a better outcome. You know, I mean, we learn so much from each other and, and that's how we are, we're going to uh, grow as a, as a whole. I, I, I can't disagree anymore with that. And Dr. Naruz is, it was one of early uh, mentor of mine trying to introduce me to this area. So I really respect him. I absolutely agree with all that. And I just have to say the um, ASSR meeting, I believe it was 21 uh, during your tenure as president, that was in the midst of of COVID. So things were pretty virtual. And I'm I'm sorry, it may have been uh, 2020 or 21, but it was kind of a fortuitous occurrence for me because I remember I was on Twitter and I saw that the ASSR shared our annual meeting is going on. It's virtual. $25 $25 for residents. <laughs> and that was the quickest and best $25 I've spent. And it was it was an amazing meeting. I learned so much 
just about how many different interventions are coming out in the spine and the spine related world. And I really loved the interdisciplinary nature of it. We had anesthesiologists, neurosurgeons, interventional pain specialists, and of course, many different uh, neuro and, and musculoskeletal and interventional radiologists sharing these different aspects about their practice and, and the cutting edge. And for me, that was a huge moment in my training, realizing that not everything interventional radiology is necessarily showing up at the more mainstream IR meetings. And so I tell almost everyone I know that ASSR is one of the best meetings you can go to for this area just because it's, it's so broad. So I do want to commend you on that was a, it was an excellent meeting, especially given the circumstances with COVID kind of throwing everything out of the loop and, and not being able to be in New Orleans directly. But I really hope to see the ASSR continue that momentum and, and advancing this area in that interdisciplinary aspect. I'm so happy that you uh, you said that because you know, it was a nerve wracking um, <laughs> um, when when um, I could not uh, have a meeting in New Orleans. I was uh, waiting so long for that, and, and and I had so much great plans for that. When that that was pulled underneath me, I was got very disappointed. But but then the opportunity came at that point was to make the meeting bigger, and so we we. I purposely made it bigger, uh, bigger than usually, um, and so I and I want to integrate as many kind of multidiscipline into that meeting. And and like I said, I I had Dr. Deer, uh, uh, Dr. Saeed from the Aspen. I had we had people from the uh, neurosurgical, orthopedics. Uh, it was just uh, uh, people that that share the same passion in treating certain body of the part, and that was. My my goal, I said, I'm going to make this bigger. And say, instead of typical, you know, two session, I double that. And so we were able to get a lot of people and get into the meeting and and kind of get a very multidisciplinary discussion about certain pathology, uh, other than you know uh, headache and spine, but many other ways and imaging too. And and a lot of my those colleagues told me, wow, I didn't realize you guys uh, have you know uh, such a uh, society. I thought you guys just say. And imaging, I go, no, no, we, we, that, that's our strength. That's our core, but we do many, many other things. And so I'm hoping to see that, uh, this coming, upcoming year as Excellent. well. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely look forward to that. And there, there's no question that the future of medicine is multidisciplinary and benefiting from that cross pollination that you've talked about. And I think that it's a positive sum game for the different specialties in the world of spine to be communicating together, sharing techniques and, and insight. That way we can all better take care of patients, you know, and it, these problems, headache, low back pain, they're not rare. There's not a small market for them. Most adults in their life are going to, at some point or other, struggle with these, these sorts of things. And so the better we all can be as physicians, clinicians, and for us in particular as interventionalists, that's only good for the patient. So I, I really commend that and really happy to see things growing in that area. And I'd like to take it back to talking about the procedures a little bit. You were given quite a description about the trigeminal neuralgia approach. And so this is one in particular that I think among headache disorders, it really sort of stands out, at least to me, because as you said, this, this is often this 
debilitating, lancinating pain. And so once the pharmacologic therapy has sort of been maximized or, or has been found to be ineffectual, uh, interventions uh, or aside from cyber knife surgery could be one of the few options. And so this is, this is kind of a classic interventional radiology scenario where there really is no other option and we can potentially provide an excellent and minimally invasive alternative. So could you just talk about your approach in terms of applying the, the diagnostic block and then the ablation? What are the specifics in the ablation procedure? And what are some things to watch out for when you're treating these patients? Yeah, so uh, trigeminal neuralgia is quite, you, know, you think of the main three branches of the trigeminal nerve. The deep, the Gasserian uh, ganglia is deep to the foramenal valley. It's in there. And so to approach that, if, if you have suspicion of a certain branch or regional area, we I usually try to do the most peripheral nerve branch of that. So like I said, if, if it's a V1, I look at, at superorbital, supertrochlear, and that I use ultrasound to get to. Pretty easy, very superficial. You can see it ultrasound, the tunnel. If it's uh, V2, I typically look at perhaps at infraorbital as one aspect, uh, and that's ultrasound. The foramen rotundum deals specifically with V2. If that's something we, we look at to do, and that would be a CT guidance uh, to get into uh, uh, with this uh, needle, thin needle. And then if it's V3, again, uh, I look at mental nerve, uh, sometimes the al uh, alveolar nerve, just be at the, behind the angle of the jaw. It's another option we can try to get there. Pretty accessible. And then the ovale we had spoken about, where that usually uh, is a test injection. And if this test injection, diagnostic injection, proves to be fruitful in terms of giving them some kind of relief, then, then we usually typically talk about uh, RFA as the next possible thing, and so uh, which is radio frequency ablation. So it's the same technology we use everywhere else in the body. Lately, I've been trying to look at other ways, some kind of neuromodulation technique uh, out there. The unfortunate part right now, a lot of the the neuromodulation we have out there is not deemed uh, above the head. It's it's really head down. But I think that's an exciting field that people are working on and hopefully one day get approval to try to put uh, uh, these small, especially small leads we have now to put into next to those nerve and stimulate it so that they don't send the uh, pain um, signal back to the brain for interpretation. And so there, there are uh, devices out there that we can start considering about that. And I'm starting to look at, at ways to try to apply that now, but it's not mainstream because approval is, is a bear with this sure. uh, uh, insurance company about these yeah, areas. Yeah, absolutely. As we've talked about with Dr. Beal before, often the regulatory apparatus lags significantly behind what we're technically capable of doing. Yeah. And then another, another areas of the face pain that I've discovered is a central, Grand Central Station, uh, because there's so much... Uh, parasympathetic and somatic nerve goes through is the sphenoidpalatine ganglia. You know, that area is a small little area that you see um, behind the, the maxillary sinus. And I uh, never, you know, I knew uh, from my vascular day, other than internal maxillary area and some of the thing goes in there, 
I really didn't make too much sense for me to be ever be in there for any other reason. But it is a very highly neuro-rich network of the face and mouth and um, pain of the face. And so if the other one doesn't help and if the distribution is kind of a little broader, um, more than just one territory, that's another area that I target. And while you can do this effectively using floral, CT is much easier. As you may have seen some pictures, you just, uh, you see it and you target into the superfit and just get the needle there. And it's pretty effective. You know, and with this, we, we go for our RFA there as well. Excellent. So th those are typical, the trigeminal facial pain, the area that I might approach. That's in the front. And then the back, there's uh, the occipital, there's uh, the um, auricular temporal, there's a greater um, temporal nerve. So there's some other nerves back there that we can look at as well for the head mm -hmm. pain. One, one question I had about those, many of these nerves that you're talking about are extremely superficial. And one thing I was wondering about is a, a test injection is, is one thing, but with the ablation in particular, are there special considerations when you're ablating such a, a superficial target? Yeah, so you want to make sure that you take the longest path toward the nerve so that you can have the ablation portion of the, of the needle underneath the skin because you don't want to cause a, a, a skin burn. And that could happen if you're too superficial. So some of these nerve, yes, they do come superficial, but they also, there's a deep section to that. Like auricular temporal, there is a deep portion that you can get to. You can see it uh, relatively with ultrasound. And you stimulate it. And when you get there, you stimulate it uh, with uh, sensory. And typically, that gives you some sense that you're in the region. And, and then you apply the, uh, the heat for the ablative portion. Excellent. And on a similar note in terms of avoiding the complications, dreaded complication in this area is particular with the trigeminal ablation is the anesthesia dolorosa. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about this phenomenon? What causes it? How do we avoid it? Yeah, it's hard to predict if, if the patient uh, get that or, you know, the complication from, from after the effect. I haven't yet discovered pre predictively from the front end they get it. So you discuss these complications, you know, like say the V3, when you deplay, there is some portion of tongue numbness, mouth numbness, you know, uh, so there's some of that peripheral. But, you know, and you weigh the, the risk that with the patient, you know, what pain they're having from the, the distribution, does it outweigh the potential complication of that? So that's the discussion we do. And when you do that with the patient in the front end and kind of give them the possible, and the way what they're living, and a lot of them are having really bad quality of life to a point like some one of my patients can't be eat in front of their kids because their face is just, you know, electrical all the time. You know, they're, they're willing to take the negative effect of the complication from that. But I haven't seen a lot of that. But yeah, I, I don't know how to avoid when it does come because you do know front end is possible. Just having that discussion in the front end helps a lot if it does happen. Sure, absolutely important to discuss the, the possibilities, even if remote. And for our listeners who may not know about this clinical entity, it's, it's one I only learned about recently. 
that anesthesia dolorosa, to my understanding, Dr. Wen, is it's a rare complication of iatrogenic um, action with the Gasserian ganglion, and it can basically cause facial numbness, but with terrible pain as well. And uh, at, at that point, that's that's a tough situation since we've used one of the Hail Mary options for pain of this region. So it, it sounds like it's potentially using a larger ablation zone could make you more prone to doing that. And so there, there are pretty well-described techniques to, to the time and, and the energy for RF ablation and these that are more or less time honored because it's been worked out over decades. Yeah, exactly. It is. I mean, and it happens with, with the other technique, you know, like you say, gamma knife. People, um, you know, how specific it is described, people get the, the complication afterward as well. So it, it's just one of those unfortunate part that we can't predict from the sure. front end that if it's going to happen um, as well. So, But it sounds like most of these patients with trigeminal neuralgia are benefiting quite a bit from these procedures. I think so. I, I've, you know, knock on wood, I, I haven't had any kind of, of serious um, complication thus far uh, from from this clinical offering thus far. Excellent. Well, it's, it's definitely something, there's a huge need for it in most communities. And I, I think it's something that the specialists with the skill set of interventional radiologists could definitely be offering. And on that note, that's kind of my last question for interventional radiologists who want to start offering headache interventions for their patients, what would be some words of advice for them, you know, good first cases or areas to focus on and, and strategies to build referrals and, and early successes? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. I, I struggled with this uh, four years ago as well, so I'm, this is very fresh on my mind, um, how I did it. Uh, not necessarily the only way or, or the right way, but I, I kind of stepped back when I, on my drive here to Oklahoma from the East Coast, I thought, well, how am I going to do this, you know? And so I've taken some business class in the, during my uh, leadership time at the um, university, and I learned this, this thing, I don't know, uh, most people may have heard a SWOT uh, analysis. Uh, it's strength, weakness, opportunity, and threats. So you kind of take that, that approach first. You look at your strength. What do you have now that you would say can strength? I mean, uh, do you have the personality, the facility, uh, uh, the people in, in the team that, that can uh, do that? Do you have your, do you have the skill that uh, you feel confident doing that? Uh, so you want to make a, a certain list of that. And then I look at next, what's my weakness? Uh, what am I weak in? Ultrasound. Uh, what am I weaking? Uh, 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 understand the anatomy or just maybe re review things I haven't seen in some time in this light. Uh, what can I do to strengthen? And, and the idea here is try to convert those weaknesses into strength after you reassess and, and, and make uh, uh, alteration, you know, for additional courses, webinars, or sometimes uh, develop some kind of mentor that can point you the direction to correct your weaknesses. And then I look at my opportunity, you know, look around your practice area. Uh, who's doing this kind of thing that you can partner with? Who else is doing this kind of thing in your area? That You can look at, at, at the website to some of the practices around, see if they uh, do that. And then uh, perhaps, like I spoke earlier, uh, pay them a visit, talk to them, give some grand rounds, develop personal relationship to open those opportunities up. Um, and then lastly, is, uh, look at the threats. 
is um, someone else doing better than we are? You know, what we have to do to kind of overcome that efficiency or supplies or which is more national reimbursement, you know, what we used to do. Uh, now, no longer, we can't do because of reimbursement. But another ad that I've add since then is, so instead of SWAT, S-W-O-T, it's now SWAT, S add H to it, it's hunger. Uh, hunger, it, I, I put there because do not be complacent. You have to be open for new ideas, knowledge, and technique in treating patients. You always want to improve your outcomes. So you have to stay hunger all the time. I go through a self-assessment every couple months. What can I do to improve this practice and um, how to make it better? In terms of what you say about some of the first cases you do, we're all familiar as radiologists how to, uh, with the myelogram and interpretation of it, there's some, a lot of new techniques that are developed out there to diagnose and treat SIH. Um, many of you, you will meet them at ASSR meeting or ASNR meeting. Um, but there's other dedicated headaches uh, meeting across the country that talks about that. So I think that's a good start because that's your baseline comfort zone. And I think the other things you probably could start early with fairly good success is occipital headache and cervicogenic headache. Uh, and those, those are, are relatively a lot of them out there. And you can do some of that early on and get pretty good success from there. Well, thank you so much. A lot of great advice right there. And is there a way that our listeners, specialists who are interested in starting at this kind of practice, can they reach out to you for guidance in any way? Oh, you bet. I'm available anytime. You, you can find me uh, most of the uh, social media and, and certainly um, I can send you my email afterward. Dr. Wynn can be found on Twitter at Neuroradiology. I'm always really impressed that you managed to get the coveted neuroradiology handle. You must have gotten on pretty early on that. I did. When, if, when I, I didn't even know what Twitter is, I just registered it. Not, I, I've had some offering people to take that handle away from me, but I, you know, it's just one of my thing. I've had it for like, oh gosh, I think 12, 13 years, yeah. whatever it is. It's tough to give that so, away, yeah. especially, yeah, pretty, pretty great to mm. be the, the king of Twitter neuroradiology. <laughs> uh, but I, I definitely recommend our, our listeners follow Dr. Wynn. He shares some great insightful cases, including some of the ones we've, we've talked about. And we haven't even uh, talked about all the other spine work you do today. And of course, that's a, that's a big part of your practice as well. And I think you've given our listeners, including me, uh, a lot of great information to think about in terms of the therapies that we can offer for these patients and how we can use our expertise in imaging and, and bring in the complementary aspect of the, the detailed nervous anatomy and the approaches that have been worked out by some other specialties. We can definitely bring that all in, integrating new techniques into our practices. And I, I hope that a lot of our listeners are going to get a lot of value from the things we've discussed today. Are there any other things you'd like to talk about before we end? No, this, uh, I just think uh, this is an, an, uh, an area I think we can be fairly great contributor to the care of patient. And I think it's another area that we always gonna broaden the, the uh, learn more from, from each other. And, and um, I'm hoping to see more of this uh, at the national level uh, as well, including the ASSR. Absolutely agree with that. I can't wait to see that as well and, and look forward to seeing you and, and some of the others at some of these meetings coming up. 
So with that, Dr. Wynn, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed our conversation and, and can't wait for our listeners to hear it as well. Well, thank you again. Thank you for Backtable for uh, this invitation. Thank you, Jake, for conducting a very uh, fun um, conversation today. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.